church in Vancouver, BC, when suddenly the windows rattled. And what had happened was that in the south part of the state of Washington, a volcano had erupted. Mount St. Helens. It caused the largest recorded landslide in history. About 80 miles of landslide. It deposited ash in 11 states. It caused a mushroom cloud 40 miles high by 15 miles wide. 57 people died. And even two weeks after the eruption, flow deposits were still over 300 degrees. Over two weeks after the uh, eruption. We went to Mount St. Helens a couple years ago and did the tour. And it was fascinating. But what struck me the most is the amount of lava that is still being accumulated. Um, how much? Does anyone know? A dump truck worth every day for 35 years. So Mount St. Helens erupted once, but it's just a matter of time before it erupts again. Um, Revelation is about the second eruption of God's judgment. And it begs the question, where will you be? In a place of safety or a place of danger when it is unleashed? In our study of the book of Revelations, today we come uh, to chapters 15 and 16, the pouring out of the seven bowls. We have seven seals already, seven trumpets, and now seven bowls. And the bowls parallel the trumpets, except they're worse. The first four of both the trumpets and the bowls deal with judgment on the earth, seas, springs of water, and the sun, respectively. The first of both has to do with, a fifth of both, excuse me, has to do with the evil spiritual kingdom. The sixth of both deals with the river Euphrates and the angels or kings that are there. And the seventh of both talk about the heavenly temple and an earthquake, lightning, rumblings, thunder, and heavy hail. And with this, the judgment is done. It's over. Before the sounding of the seventh trumpet, the angel said, there will be no more delay. And here in 15 verse 1, we are told that these bowls are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. So the sounding of the seventh trumpet, the pouring of the seventh bowl, signaled the consignment of the devil, death, those who worship the beast, and of the righteous, whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life, to their respective eternal homes. So the boy, bowls uh, given in 15 verse 1, um, bowls and boils. You excuse me if I mix them up. And I notice that when I mix up words, I go, eh, and then say it correctly. So that's a little weird, but uh, that's what I do. These bowls are a series of plagues, but before they are poured out, John, the writer of Revelation, sees God's people standing before a sea of glass mingled with fire. You remember John's vision of the throne room of God in chapter 4, and he sees a sea of glass like crystal. 
And here God's people are singing a song of worship about the deeds of the Lord, about his kingship, their, uh, the nation's fear of him, God's glory, God's holiness. And John also sees the tabernacle or the tent of witness. Between the references to the temple, the hard copy, he suddenly makes a reference to the tabernacle or soft copy, um, the tent built as a place for worship in the days before the temple. And John says that the temple was filled with glory so much that no one could enter it. And only then are the angels commanded to pour out the bowls of the plagues of the judgment of God. So the first bowl is harmful and painful uh, sores. Next. Um, I looked for a picture of boils and sores, but they were way too gross. So, so that's what we got. That's pretty tame, actually. But The second bowl sees the waters in the seas turn to blood so that every creature in the seas died. The third bowl is poured out on the rivers and springs, and they too are turned to blood. And then the bowls are interrupted. And the angel who poured out his bowl on the water praises God, saying, Just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. For they have shed the bloods, blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink, that is, from the rivers and springs. It is what they deserve. And then the altar says, Yes, Lord God the Almighty, true and just are your judgment. Now, in chapter 6, verse 10, you remember the martyrs underneath the altar cry out, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Well, now it has happened. The martyrs beneath the altar are avenged. Then the sequence of the bowls picks up again. The fourth angel pours his bowl out on the sun, and it is allowed to scorch people with fire and fierce heat. Have you ever sat too close to a campfire, and your jeans got so hot you suddenly had to back away? Well, that's kind of what these guys are experiencing. But get this. They curse the name of God, who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. They ignore God's lordship over them until he has no choice but to judge them, and then they curse him because he judges them. Imagine a man in the kingdom who routinely violated the laws of that kingdom, even though those laws, if he had kept them, would not only honor the king, but would make his own life much, much better. And eventually, king has no choice but to put him in prison. And even there, though, the king's officials let him know that if he obeys the laws of the kingdom, he would not only honor the king, but his life would be much better. He's free to go. But the man angrily replies, why should I honor the king? He's the one who put me in here. The man is unrepentant, but he blames the king. 
the people of the earth are unrepentant, but it's not their fault. They curse God. They blame God. This is the first of three times in this chapter that John highlights the, men, uh, the unrepentance of the people. So having experienced the blessing of the Lord, they refuse to acknowledge him. And now facing the judgment of the Lord, they likewise refuse to repent. They absolutely will not respond to God in any way. C.S. Lewis, the writer of half a century ago, said, There are two kinds of people. Those who say to God, your will be done, and those to whom God says, your will be done. No one is judged unless their choices demand it. Then the fifth angel pours out his bowl. On the throne of the beast and his kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pains and sores. However, again, they did not repent of their deeds. Back in chapter 9, um, with the sounding of the trumpets, the fifth trumpet, the angel of the abyss, unleashes an army that darkens the sun and torments people. In other words, they gnaw their tongues in anguish. They will long to die but they can't. The sixth angel pours out his bowl. And at the great river Euphrates, it dries up, and the great kings from the east cross it. And again, in chapter 9, with the sixth trumpet, the four angels, fallen angels, I think, are released from the river Euphrates with an army of twice myriads of myriads. Um, the NIV, New International Version, uh, translation is literal but unfortunate. Um, 200 million. Uh, myriads just means an uh, incalculable number. So not 200 million, just a whole bunch. And then in chapter 16, again, John sees the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet, or the second beast from chapter 13. And from their mouths come three unclean spirits like frogs. They are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle with armies of myriads of myriads on the great day of God the Almighty. And the battle will take place on what, is, what in Hebrew is called Armageddon. Armageddon means the mountain of Megiddo, and Megiddo is a plain, so we're not sure. Most scholars think it's symbolic. But this is a place of final class between good and evil. But just before this is a quote from Jesus. Behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. So, I don't know if you notice this, but it's interesting that the battle in Armageddon is not even described. The armies are all gathered for war, ready to fight, but apparently they don't get to because the next thing we read is the seventh angel pours out his bowl and a loud voice comes from the temple saying, It's done. 
Jesus doesn't actually need to fight to have the victory. It's done. That's all she wrote. See the cows? They're coming home. Hear that? It's a fat lady. She's singing. It's all over. It's done. Then there's an earthquake, such as have never been seen since man had been on the earth, and a great storm, just like at the end of the seven trumpets and the seven seals, and the great city, Babylon, one that in two weeks, is broken into three parts. It drinks the wine of the cup of the wrath of God. You have to listen to last week to get that. Islands flee. Mountains are flattened. Huge hail falls. You remember last summer's hailstone, uh, hail storm? Dana said um, that, yeah, it looks like somebody had stood on her street and riddled the walls with machine gun fire. That's all hail holes. Pretty bad. Um, when we say that hailstones are very severe, what we talk about, hailstones are the size of golf balls. Well, this hail in Revelation weighs one talent or 100 pounds. And the people don't repent. They curse God because of the severity of the hail. They refuse to acknowledge the lordship of God, even after the seven bowls and God's crushing of evil. Now, I said at the beginning that this is the uh, second eruption of God's judgment. In the passage read earlier by Dell, God's people are standing before his throne singing the song of Moses, the servant of the Lord, and the song of the Lamb. The great picture that the Bible gives of the redemption of God's people and judgment on God's enemies is the story of Israel's relief from release from slavery in Egypt. And if we really read it, you see the severity of the judgment on Egypt. Revelation 15 and 16 are riddled with references to Moses and the Exodus. Consider this story. God's people are enslaved in Egypt. After 400 years, he raises up a deliverer and commissions Moses to go and lead them to freedom. The problem is, though, that Pharaoh doesn't let them go. So God judges them. A series of supernatural acts as God inflicts him with a series of plagues. He makes the Nile River become blood so that every fish in the water dies. He makes hail fall on the earth, very heavy hail that has never been seen since Egypt became a nation. He sends frogs. He makes painful sores come on the people. He plunges the kingdom of Egypt into darkness. But in spite of this, Pharaoh absolutely does not repent. So after the plague of darkness, God kills every firstborn of Egypt, but also those of the Israelites who are not under the blood of the lamb, which they put on their doorposts. Those Israelites that were under the blood had to stay awake, keeping their garments on, ready to travel. And finally, Pharaoh sends them out. 
The people are delivered from slavery. Right again, though, Pharaoh uh, changes his mind and pursues them. Israel is on the shores of the Red Sea, but God makes the water dry up, and they pass through the water. Egypt tries to follow them, but are drowned, and the Israelites explode into a song of worship about the deeds of the Lord, about his kingship of the nations, about their fear of him, God's glory, and God's holiness. At Mount Sinai, God forms a covenant with the nation. At a special covenant-ratifying meal, the elders of Israel see God and they eat together. They see God and under his feet, there is a sea like crystal, like the very heavens for clearness. They are instructed to build a a tabernacle or tent of meeting. A tent builds as a place of worship, which they do. There are instructions about many aspects of worship, including the fact that they must not go up the altar on steps, lest their nakedness be exposed on it. When the tabernacles is completed, God, quote, moves in, but the sanctuary is filled with the glory of God so that neither Moses nor anyone else could enter it. The language of Revelation, and not just in these two chapters, takes us deliberately to Moses and Egypt and the Exodus and says that was a foretaste, the dress rehearsal for the final judgment. God's rescuing of Israel and his judgment on Egypt is in microcosm what his final judgment will be in macrocosm. So the song of Moses, the first deliverer of God's people, becomes the song of Jesus Christ, the second deliverer, the greater deliverer. Moses, who pronounced judgment on the gods of Egypt, and Jesus, who pronounces judgment on the gods of this world, on anything that sets himself up against God and against death and sin and over Satan himself. Because the story of Moses is the story of Jesus. Consider again. Humanity is enslaved by sin. After 400 years silence of God following the end of the Old Testament, God sends a deliverer, his own son Jesus. His life is marked by a series of supernatural acts, healings, exorcism, even the raising of the dead. But then he is crucified. And after a period of darkness, he dies, a substitutionary sacrifice for sin. And those who trust in that sacrifice are saved from God's judgment for sin by virtue of his shed blood. The Bible even calls him the lamb that was slain. Through Christ, people are set free from slavery to sin in passing through the waters of baptism enter a covenant, the new covenant relationship with God. There is a covenant ratifying meal made up of bread and wine. At the close of history, when God's final judgment of sin falls, described in this book, Revelation, it includes water turning through blood, hail, boils, death, demons symbolized by frogs. And the Bible ends not as is commonly understood with people going to heaven forever, but with the city of God coming down and God dwelling with his people forever. The book 
a revelation is of Jesus Christ and about his utter victory over the forces of evil, including the judgment of the wicked, the preservation of the righteous, and the destruction of anti-God world systems and of Satan. Now, I'll have a lot of information so far. You've been confronted several times in recent weeks about the need to choose the lamb or not the lamb. You've been confronted with the consequences of not choosing the lamb. But what about choosing the lamb? Is it fire insurance? Is it just about avoiding the painful consequences? No. No, a thousand times. No. In this life, Jesus gives peace. He's a prince of peace. When your family is falling apart, Jesus doesn't make you feel good, but he gives you peace. He carries you through. It's a peace that's beyond all understanding. It doesn't make sense, but there is peace. When I first had my biopsy on my brain tumor, in the post-surgery room, I had what I think was the most spiritual conversation of my life. Um, The nurse was struggling with her family, with um, relating to her daughter, who herself had experienced sexual harassment. And as I lay there in a drug-addled haze, the Lord spoke to this woman. And I got to be a part of that. I don't even know what she looked like. It couldn't open my eyes. And we never talked again. But I've often thought that if God used that conversation to reveal himself to that nurse, this whole brain tumor thing would be worth it. Because there is peace. Jesus gives joy. People who have everything but don't have Jesus lack that deep joy that is beyond all happiness. When something happens, they're crushed. Many lack joy even when nothing happens. But not us. Again, Jesus doesn't make us happy, but there is an undercurrent of joy even in the pain. And when we look out from our pain, we see God using it to bring honor to himself. Jesus gives contentment. He deeply satisfied, satisfies. About 25 years ago or so, um, I worked for a moving company. And the guys I worked with worked for the weekend. They would spend literally hundreds of dollars on drinks and watch the bar's, quote, entertainment. And then they'd go to work on Monday to make money for the next weekend. And one day, as I was driving home, I tried to imagine life like that, and I was immediately filled with despair. And that was just in my imagination. I couldn't even think of life without Jesus. Philippians 3, verse 8, my favorite verse, speaks of the surpassing greatness 
of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. He satisfies in this life and in the next. When culture takes a stand against you, black is called white and white black. When upholding the values of God even becomes illegal, at the end of the day, it's us who will stand. And our anti-God culture will be destroyed. When loneliness or depression hits, a time will come when you are free. When you are bullied in school or at work, the bullies will be judged, as will the sellers of drugs and people, as will the abusers, as will the dishonest. Now, we don't take joy in the damnation of these people. We're called to love our enemies, seek their redemption, but the time is guaranteed when there will be no more bullies, drug deals, sellers of people, abusers, dishonest. God will prepare a table for us in the presence of our enemies. We will embark on eternal life without the barest trace of evil, an eternal life of inexpressible joy. Joy that not only words cannot express, but Joy that is inexpressible because we can't even imagine it yet. Joy in the presence of the one who sits on the throne and of a lamb. And all this is possible because Jesus, the lamb of God, will judge with finality all evil and evildoers. With a final eruption of God's judgment, You will be in a place of safety, and you will stand in this this life and the next with a victorious Jesus, the Lamb. Amen. Let's pray.